Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Thank you, Sister Becky. The verse 31, and I'm just going to talk on this just a little bit. Uh, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what was it that God speaks to them, that they had done that he was so pleased with? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly to you, and as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, notice he's not naming some sins. He could name a lot of sin. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Why, Lord? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, and naked, and you did not clothe me, and sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then to finish it off, he said, when you didn't do it to me, to least of these are my brethren, you didn't do it unto me. And the thread goes on, even to Laodicea. Laodicea, the church that God hated, the lukewarm church, thought it was wealthy and increased in goods and had need of nothing. And dare say, if I looked a little deeper, I'd probably find the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the same thing prevalent in Matthew, the 25th chapter there too, that they only cared about themselves. And I think about in our country, most of all of all countries, how none of us really are hungry. I'm talking about starving. And God has blessed us. So let's remember that. I just thought about, and then I thought about how we should be helping the poor, naked and doing these things to please God. But that was just something I saw in Scripture, and I don't want to speak on that anymore tonight, but I found it very interesting. I want to talk from the book of Ezekiel. And I want to really address some thoughts that you might have, especially if you've lost something dear in your life. 
And I'm not talking necessarily about a human being, even though it quite possibly could be, but it could be something that was so valuable to you that you had trusted God to maintain and keep, and you began to doubt the character of God. Now, immediately your pride wells up and says, I've never doubted the character of God, really. You might have felt sometimes that God might have been arbitrary and cruel. And maybe you even felt that he was a little aloof and uncaring because you prayed and you prayed over something that was so very important to you. And it didn't seem that God was concerned. When, when life delivers to you a blow, a hard blow, that leaves you broken, and it leaves you bleeding. Sometimes you may wonder, does God really love me? I thought that. That was the very thing that actually brought me to God. The very statement, does God really even love me? And I want to say this once, and I'm going to really wrap it up in the end. During these times in your life, it is important for you to run, to run to the cross. To run to the cross to see the sacrifice that he made for you. I'm going to have you turn with me to Ezekiel, the 24th chapter. But before we read the verses that I want you to, I'm not going to give you the verse yet because I don't want you to read it until I'm there. But turn to Ezekiel 24. The passage that we're going to look at tonight is, is stunning. It's shocking, really. really. It's almost unbelievable. Matter of fact, I have to tell you the truth. When I first read it, I, I said to myself, God, how could you do this? And again, tonight in the next few minutes that I have with you, I want to address that very question and even a broader issue, and that is the compassion of God. Here we find at this portion of Scripture that Ezekiel is really no stranger to bad news. Ezekiel already knows what it's like to be conquered by a, a foreign power because he's in captivity. Ezekiel's writings take place in Babylon, near the Chavar River. He's there for nine years. His writings span a period of roughly about six years. Along with the people that are with him there, he's lost all of his material possessions. He's living a life of bondage in Babylon. God had foretold through Jeremiah and Daniel, the prophets, that this was going to happen. The fall of Judah was no secret. The people just refused to hear the message of the preacher. Even though the preacher preached it every Sunday and every Wednesday, people just, after a while, fluffed it off. The fall of Judah came in three stages. All by one man, Nebuchadnezzar. The first wave came in 605 B.C., 
when Jehoiakim, who was the king, was carried off along with Daniel, and you remember his three friends. That was the first wave. You would think after the first wave, those that were left behind might be a little bit more on their guard. They might have been a little bit more repentant after this happened. But no, their heart was hardened. So that even after the first part of the destruction, they went back to their sinful, lazy ways. The second wave from Babylon came in 597 B.C. If my math is right, that's about eight years later. In this wave, Ezekiel's carried off with Jehoiakim and only 10,000 hostages. When I thought about this, the people that were in Babylon under the captivity, I thought he took lots of people. But a lot of the people of Judah were destroyed. Only 10,000, and those that came with the first wave were there. But it wasn't until 586 B.C. That's 11 years later that the total destruction came. The total annihilation of Judah. I mean everything. The walls, the temple, everything was flattened and burned and destroyed. And like I said, Ezekiel, God was faithful to him, gave him a home on the Chebar River where the captive Jews that were there would come to him to hear the prophecies that we read about in his book. I look at Ezekiel, he's the veteran of bad news. Him and John the Baptist probably would really, really get together up in heaven and be able to share notes because they warned the people. They warned them over and over again. But even though he had shared so much bad news, the news that was now to come was going to shake him at the foundation of his own faith. God is going to inform the prophet that he is about to kill his wife. Yes, that's what I said. God intended to take her life in order to use her as an object lesson for the Jews. Now, let's read this. You'll find, find it somewhat shocking. Verse 15 of Ezekiel 24. And the Lord, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. Period. Stop. His wife meant everything to him. Ezekiel at this time is 34 years old. And the Lord says, I'm going to take the desire of your life, the one thing that you have left, your wife, I'm going to take it from you. But you shall not mourn and you shall not weep, 
and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes, your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache and do not eat the bread of men. I'm going to take your wife and I'm not, I'm not even going to let you to mourn her loss. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening, my wife died. And in the morning, I did as I was commanded. How many of you think that you could sit next to a man like that and share stories? Never falters, never wavers. The Lord says he's the desire of his eyes. And yet, he does exactly as, the God, as God has commanded. Nowhere do I find him writing anything about the unfairness of God. He was 34 years old, and this was the ninth year of his exile. Did you know that Ezekiel was also a priest? He was. He was a priest and a prophet to the exiles in Babylon from 592 B.C. until 586 B.C. And Ezekiel labored to convince the Jews that they had no immediate hope of deliverance. That was his message. There's no hope. God's going to destroy Judah. All I'm doing is trying to warn you. You know the tribulation period's coming, and a preacher worth of salt should be warning the people of what is about to happen on the earth. We aren't going to stop it. But we need to warn the people so that they can be prepared and for the church be delivered. But you know, people, as long as, the, as Jerusalem stood, they retained their hope of deliverance. As long as Jerusalem's standing there, as long as the temple is still there in the morning, there's always hope. Things are just going to remain the same. And it's, we're really no different. And this is the part that's really hitting me. We're really no different than they are in this world. God has warned us. He's warned the world of what's about to happen. But just because the stock market's open tomorrow morning, and you've got a job to go to and you're able to buy your food and, and pay the rent. You really just think that it's not going to come. They wouldn't listen. And they would not listen until Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Now God uses the death of Ezekiel's beloved wife for a reason. He needs to somehow show the unprecedented grief that he has for his own people. They don't seem to understand how strongly 
he feels about them. We can stand up and we can talk about it. But God says, I want you to see through my prophet how I feel. You know, Jerusalem, like I said, and, and the temple where the Jewish people delight, they, they gloried in those structures. They gloried in the city. They gloried in their accomplishments. And then we find out their response to the disaster and the loss of their own loved ones in the verses that follow. Now, let me share some things with you about the rituals of mourning. This is how the people responded when Ezekiel did not follow. He did not follow the ritual of mourning that is normally followed after the death of his wife. I'm reading from verse 19 to verse 24. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. He's saying, I'm going to take the thing that you love the most, just like I've taken the thing that Ezekiel loved the most. You will do as I've done. You will not cover your mustache, and you will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn, and you will not weep, but you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Thus, Ezekiel will be assigned to you according to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. Certainly this was going to be a dark day for the Jewish exiles, and not only for the Jewish exiles, but for those that were left behind. So severe was going to be the destruction of Judah that they would not even have time to go through the normal burial processes for their loved ones. And in order to make this message so powerful and convincing, God gave them an object lesson, and he used a person to illustrate what he was about to do. Again, I point out, there's no record of Ezekiel struggling with God over the loss of his wife. But I can only imagine how one of us, us might respond. I can imagine how I might respond. God, are you serious? You're going to take my wife? She's a good wife. She's a loving wife. Oh God, there's got to be another way. And you're going to do what? You're going to use her as an object lesson? You're going to use my wife as a visual aid? Wow, he could have said that. He could go on to say, well, Lord, you were so very creative. 
You created the whole world. Surely there's something out there that you could use better than her for an object lesson. How about the rainbow? That was a convincing object lesson after the flood. How about all the miraculous acts of healing? Those can really, really be convincing. How about the thundering and the shaking and the lightning of Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given? That was a great object lesson. Oh, Lord, please don't take my wife. She's all I have. Of course, there's no record of Ezekiel doing this. He simply obeyed God and did his duty. Of course, the other aggravating element of the situation is the denial to even mourn the loss of his loved one. You know, when a person grieves, it allows them the sense of predictability right after a death. It gives them somewhat of control for a time when the rest of life is so much out of control at the loss of someone that's close to you. The act of mourning is very important in death. Furthermore, one of the worst things that can happen to a person that's grieving is to go on about life as though nothing's happened. Now, as part of the Jewish ritual, several things were practiced when a person died. Any kind of ornamental head covering was removed. Shoes were removed. People went barefoot. They would cover their mouths with a veil. Remember the mustache? Cover the mustache. They were not supposed to eat their own food. But their food was to be provided by others. And people, when someone lost someone close to them, would bring bread, wine, and hard-boiled eggs for them to eat. They were brought a special dish, oftentimes made of beans and lentils. Sort of like we do, trying to help someone in the loss of something important. But Ezekiel, again, was commanded to forego all those things. I wonder how Ezekiel might have been comfort at that, comforted at that time. Sometimes, I guess, we can derive um, comfort from the con consideration that God is sovereign. God is God. God can do what he wants. Even in the worst circumstances, it helps us to know that we're not the pawns of fate, that things just don't happen, happenstance. Oftentimes we say, God knows where I live. God's in control. Have you ever heard that? Acknowledging the sovereignty of God and the power of God over our circumstances. We draw comfort from the fact that it's, we're not luckless victims of random events and that God truly does rule over all the earth. Of course, when we look at the scriptures here, God's sovereignty is clearly displayed in what we read. Notice that God did not say he was going to permit the prophet's wife to die. Didn't say that. Nor did he say that his wife would be killed. No. 
God was very direct. God would take the life of Ezekiel's life, of Ezekiel's wife. And now we take a, taking that into consideration of what God is trying to use this analogy for. He was not just going to permit the fall of, this, of Jerusalem. Nor was he going to give credit to others for its destruction. No, again, God was very direct. God said, I am going to destroy the temple. God said, I am going to destroy Jerusalem. Now, even though the Babylonians would be used as the instruments of his destruction, God said, I am using them to destroy, but it is my hand. And right here, we have an example of how God accomplishes his decrees. God's holy. He ordains all that comes to pass. Do you believe that? including the existence of evil. Yet he never sins. The Babylonians were merely, what? A tool in the hand of God. See, God didn't want the children of Israel to think for one moment that Jerusalem fell because the Babylonian gods were bigger and stronger than he was. He wanted them to know that it was his choice There's a book out there called um, A Grace Disguised. It's written by a man that's lost uh, his mother and his daughter and his grandmother in a car crash. And he writes this book. And he quotes something in his book that's just amazing. And this is a quote from his book after this accident happened. I avoided even thinking about God's sovereignty after the accident. The very idea that God, whom I had tried for so many years to trust and follow, would allow or even cause such a tragedy was unthinkable to me. It's a pretty common response, but he writes it so clearly. He eventually accepts the sovereignty of God and how he struggled initially. Later in his book, he writes this. And this meant a lot to me when I saw this. My loss made God seem terrifying and inscrutable. For a long time, I saw his sovereignty as a towering cliff in winter, icy, cold, windswept. I stood in the misery at the base of this cliff and looked up at its forbidding, unscalable wall. I felt overwhelmed, intimidated, and crushed by its hugeness. There wasn't anything inviting or comforting about it. It loomed over me, completely oblivious to my presence and pain. It defied climbing. It mocked my puniness. I yelled at God to acknowledge my suffering and to take responsibility for it. But all I heard was the lonely echo of my own voice. 
That's scary. That's what it, likes, it feels like to be deprived of the sensible presence of God. Notice I said the sensible presence of God. That means I understand. He's saying, I don't understand. Not having the light of his countenance and the joy of his fellowship during a, a very intense season of grief. Even if one believes in the sovereignty of God, it sometimes feels like your prayers bounce off the wall. Now, I'm, there's, I'm getting going to be positive, okay? I'm taking you to a place, a very dark place. But I want you to see something. And I'm going I'm to show you in just a moment. You see, David knew what it was like to be deprived of the sensible presence of God. Note his anguish in Psalm, the 42nd chapter, verse 1 through 3. And most of you could probably quote this. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, hey, where's your God? And times like these are times of testing. And one of the tests is whether or not we will accuse God of being aloof and uncaring. Whether we will do that or not. You know, maybe we won't go that far. But we might be tempted to say that God cares about people as groups. Have you ever heard that? He's more concerned about the church generally than he is about me privately or about me individually. He just doesn't care about me as an individual, but he's concerned about the church. No, I think he's oblivious to my pain. Either one of these sentiments that I've shared with you, they lead to despair. They lead to total despair. But you see, David never really gave up. He knew in the midst of his distress that God would not be distant forever. That he would know the comfort of God again. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say that God is going to take me from one spot to the other and I'm going to jump from hilltop to hilltop. He says, I'm going to walk through the entire valley. But what happens if it's so dark that you don't feel or see or, or can acknowledge his presence? Sometimes there's no obvious explanation. Lots of people have written commentaries. You know, if you look on this at the scripture, a lot of people have written commentaries on the Ezekiel's experience here. The experience of his grief. Some would say, well, this experience gave him a pastor's heart. I've used that. A lot of the things that I've gone through have actually helped give me a pastor's heart. And maybe some would say that's what's happened here. And he could be a better minister to those exiles in Babylon through all these things. 
Others have suggested that Ezekiel's trust and obedience in the midst of great sorrow glorified God and encouraged others. And that could be true too. Sometimes my faithfulness in the midst of my struggle encourages other people. So I'm not saying that either one of those is wrong. However, let me tell you that when the hot iron of grief hits your flesh, when it burns through and hits your heart, and when it goes down into the very depths of your soul, there's really no good rational explanations. They just, these things just burn away like dry leaves. Nothing explains this, you say. Nothing makes sense to me. Now I'm, Brother Kylie and I will both agree. We both said these same things to people that have gone through grief. You know, God's going to use this for the good. And we use that scripture. All these things work to the, for together, to together for the good of those that love God. But I want to show you something else tonight. In times like these, we have a city of refuge. We do have a place to run. And oftentimes we do not run there. The place to run is to Calvary. The most graphic, graphic demonstration of the love of God stands in the midst of a sea of pain and misery called Golgotha. In the middle of a stormy sea stands the cross that bore Christ. At the cross, God satisfies my questions without even answering them. There at that cruel and bloody cross, he addresses my questions without even having to say a word to me. One glimpse of the cross leaves me awed and speechless. Next to the cross of Jesus Christ, God removes my doubts, he calms my fears, and he brings peace into my troubled life. Beside that blessed cross, the love of God cries out without speaking, giving peace to my restless spirit. This is how much I love you. This is my visible demonstration of how much I care for you. Here's why. How can I complain of being unloved to the one who loved me before I was even born? How can I accuse God of being uncaring when his care for me required the life of his only son? of himself and flesh. Dare I cry unfair? While I remembering the suffering Messiah bearing the pain that I truly deserve? Would I complain to God about his justice when I recall the precious Son of God 
enduring divine justice on my behalf? I could not. No. No, at the foot of the cross, any doubts I have about the love of God, about the goodness of God, and the justice of God are washed away by that same blood that cleansed my spirit and my soul. You see, God's not rocked and tossed around by emotion like we are. He's not unstable. You see, my emotion chases me down and it tackles me. My emotions oftentimes take control of my very character. But not with God. He's steadfast. He's sure. God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion, every one of those attributes of God are always expressed in consistent ways that attest to his character. I want to tell you tonight that God's not aloof from suffering. And you may not be suffering, and, and you may be saying, why are you even preaching this tonight? Is there something going on in the church that I don't know about? Well, I'll tell you what. I wanted to be in Ezekiel tonight, and I want to tell you that just down the road, a little, to, little time from now, there is going to be a time on the earth that no man has ever seen or ever will see again. The Bible says unless those days be shortened, not any flesh on the earth would be saved. And if we do not have an idea of the God that we serve, we may be the one crying out, unfair, unfair God. God, by his own sovereign choice, enters into my situation. He willingly enters into my own suffering. This is the same God who cried out over Israel in Hosea 11 and 8, notice what he says here to Israel. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. You know, on that instrument of torture, the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of all people. All they would have to do is take part of his, his work. Through him, mercy and justice became friends. And pain and love were united. I want you to think about that. Through him, mercy and justice become friends. And pain and love were united, providing atonement and reconciling us back unto God. And in sort of wrapping this up tonight, God never changes. 
His compassion never changes. When you know him, you need not fear tomorrow. You may not understand why he does what he does. And there may be times that there is no good answer. And I'm going to be careful about the terminologies that I use when I myself counsel people that are in the very place that Ezekiel was. Careful what I say. I think I'm going to stop telling them that this will make you a better pastor. What if I don't want to be a better pastor? I want my wife. It's not logical. I'm going to start saying, if you're in doubt about God, let's go back to the cross. Let's go back and look at the cross and see. There's a, there's a verse, Stephen Green, he wrote a song called Calvary is the Sea. Let me read the verse to his song. If I should ever doubt your love, my only prayer would be that you would keep your rugged cross etched upon my memory. No sacrifice I could give for you could match what you've given me. For my everything is but a drop of dew, and Calvary is the sea. Calvary is the sea. Let's stand together tonight. Sometimes I feel so honored to live in the day that I, I live in. To experience some of the, the end time revival. But other times... I realize the load of responsibility that's on my shoulders. And as I read the book and I hear the prophets cry out their message, I feel God speaking to me. You're my Ezekiel. You're my Jeremiah. You're my Daniel. You're the watchman on the wall. Warn the people. And yes, sometimes he might take something that I love and he may use it to present his love to someone else. But I've come to the realization that everything that I have is his. And maybe that's what Ezekiel felt. My wife belongs to God. I belong to God. I just hope and pray that we could live up to the examples of those that have preceded us. And we do not become the careless, lazy church of Sodom that we don't become a Laodicea and we become comfortable and, 
and just sort of float like a leaf on a, a river swirling down the river of time because we need to shake ourselves. We need to wake ourselves up. We don't have much time. And you would say, even as Jesus boldly proclaimed, because they prophesied it and they preached it over and over, they became lethargic. Where is the promise of his coming? You preached it for years, friend. Where is the promise? And they go out and they begin to eat and drink and beat the servants. And it says, God will come in an hour that they are not looking for them, for him. One of the things that I, I want to do with the time that I've got left is I want to enjoy life. I love to laugh. I love living. I told my doc the other day, I said, I want to live as long as I can. Do whatever you have to do. I love my life. But I've also got to realize that the time that I have, it's not my time. I'm on God's clock. Think about that tonight. You who punch a clock or you who run a business, if your employee came to work and sat on the chair after he punched in and didn't do anything, or what he did was half-hearted and maybe he didn't show up for work like he should, how would you feel? be angry but the employee that loves to come to work and does his job that's the one God will pay Lord Jesus tonight I open this altar and I pray that something that's been said may have reached down into our hearts and stirred our spirits. I pray for those that listen to this on, online, Lord, that something in this message would stir them and help them to understand like those in Judah who kept putting off. The Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and we'll continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.